And I bring to this pulpit a man of God, a holy man of God, who has impeccable Christian integrity, he and his wife. And they've served in Christian education for many years, since 2001. He's been a professor at Urshan Graduate School of Theology, earned his doctorate degree from Temple University. But he has served in an apostolic Christian education. He's been a church planter, but his calling is to invest truth into the next generation. He's chosen to make sure he teaches those brand new students so that they are anchored in truth. I love Brother David Norris, Dr. David Norris, not just because he is brilliant, but because he has dedicated himself to the Word of God, to memorization, to study. And I bring him to this pulpit um, to, to minister to us. I, I did need to say that he's an author of numerous books, some are in the foyer today. We've sold out of life, death, and the end of the world. You can order it. We'll ship it here. But you need to familiarize yourself and open your heart and let truth permeate your life. Would you welcome right now Brother David Norris as he comes to minister the Word of God and the power of the Spirit. What a wonderful presence of the Lord that we feel here today, and I'm so blessed to be a part of what's going on in, in, in this church, and appreciate all those who are involved, the staff and uh, your leadership, and Brother and Sister Johns, and I'm just, uh, just been my blessing to be here. I have a sermon, but before I have a sermon, I have a sermon. It's not for you. Well, it could be for you, but it's really, I felt to have a pre-sermon, a five-minute pre-sermon for people who are watching online, someone that's watching. I don't know who it is, but I know it's for somebody. So um, before I read my text, I'm going to have you be seated, and in just uh, four and a half minutes or so, I'm going to call for you to stand again. And I know this is unusual, and it's unusual for me. I've never done it before, so I'm trying to be obedient. I memorized the book of Revelation twice. Um, yeah, I know. Not everybody does that. I did it first in the King James, and then uh, some years later, I went back and did it in the New King James. Uh, and my first experience with that, and I would do it like I was a... a a bus driver, actually, I was planning a church, and we were, um, well, that's a different story. Anyway, um, but I, I would do it during breaks and when I had times, and, 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 and I had this experience I never had before or since. As I memorized the book of Revelation, I uh, was going plague after plague after plague, and I, and I got depressed. I'm like, oh, God, they're still dying. I read some really scary verses, and to me, they're even scary today. I read from Revelation chapter 20, verse 11, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it before his face, the earth and heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. Then I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and the books were open. 
And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. They were judged, each one, according to their works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire, which this is a, which is a second death. And anyone who was not found in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. That's scary. That's, that's scary stuff. You know, I've met people, maybe you've thought this yourself, I'd like to tell God a thing or two. I'll go to that judgment, and I'll tell them what happened to me and how they did that to me and how he wasn't there for me. And I'll tell him it wasn't fair, and he'll know why I didn't serve him. You don't want to do that. You don't want to think that way. You don't want to even consider that. You don't want to stand in this judgment. And I, I, there's a way that you don't have to. In fact, God himself made that way. It's through Jesus Christ. He died on the cross for you. You say, you don't, you don't know me. You don't know where I've been. You don't know what I have. You don't know my life. I know I don't know it. But he knows it. And he loves you. And he cares for you. And today he's, he's talking to you Say, well, I will never forgive. I can't forgive what they did to me. And that's hard, I know. But you don't have to do all that stuff at one time. All you have to do is take the first step and say, Lord, I don't know how to do this, but I, I need you. And I want you to cleanse me from my sins. Go to a good church. Go to the church and the altar. He call you, come and stand. And you just say that to the Lord. And, 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 and somebody's going to pray with you. And, and they'll be with you. You don't have to do this on your own. And when you do that, you're going to feel the presence of the Lord. And God will forgive you your sins. They'll ask you, would you want to be baptized? They'll tell you how Paul was baptized after he'd even killed people. Did terrible things. And the, the man said, wash away your sins, <laughs> calling on the name of the Lord. Make sure you get baptized in Jesus' name. That's, 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 that's essential. And, and then oftentimes, even in the, the baptismal tank, as you're praising the Lord, the Holy Ghost, like, like it happened on the day of Pentecost, will come inside of you, and you will be filled to overflowing. And the presence of God who created the universe will be with you from that time on. All you have to do is whisper the name of Jesus. And he is there. I want to tell you something else. This whole thing, all that stuff in the book of Revelation, you won't have to worry about it. Let's stand. Would you pray with me as we get prepared to read our text? Lord God, Lord God, I pray right now for this one in the name of Jesus Christ.
who you have especially called and interrupted this service to talk to. And Lord, I pray that you would bless him. And Lord, I know, I know you're there for them. And I know you will be with them and you will help them, God, even now as they pray. In the name of Jesus, in the name of Jesus, in the name of Jesus. Amen. I'm reading from the book of 1 Corinthians. I'm going to start, it's an odd passage, but I'm going to start in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and the beginning in verse 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 11, I'm reading from the new King James, 1 Corinthians 3, 11. Paul writes, uh, For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, previously in the chapter, he, he makes an analogy of how we build our lives. And so he said, uh, you can build it any way you want to build it. Uh, the foundation is Jesus, though, and you can put all kind of stuff on it and build it, and you can build a church that way. And then in verse 12, he talks about this. He says, now, if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stone, wood, hay, straw, then it goes on to say, there's going to come a reckoning. This is not the last throne judgment. This is not the judgment that I just spoke about. This is a different kind of judgment. The Bible calls it the judgment seat of Christ. It's spoken of in 2 Corinthians 5.10 and Romans 14.10. It's a raised platform. It's a dais. It's a place of rewards where the things that you did, the faithfulness that you experienced will be manifest in your life. The Bible tells us, I better not preach. Better read the text and let you sit down. But here's the next verse. Each one's work will become clear, for the day will declare it, and it will be revealed by fire. What you did, he's gonna, he's, there's going to be rewards. There's going to be big rewards. There's going to be honor. Uh, uh, again, I'm off the text. And fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. Now, look at this. This is what's so strange. It's a weird text. Uh, if anyone's work which he has built on endures, he'll receive a reward. Then it says, if anyone's work is burned, he'll suffer loss. But he himself will be saved, yet so is through fire. This is not the judgment where like, oh, you did bad. You're, you, no, no. This is, this is a place of honor, and I want to talk about it. And I want to talk about how to join in this and how you can absolutely make a difference in your life for the rest of your life and also for eternity. And the name of this message is God's Honor Guard. God's Honor Guard. God bless you. You may be seated. My wife sent me some new articles she had never read about 9-11 this week. We do not forget those when we were running out of the building, those who were running into the building. 
don't know if you've ever been in uh, Arlington Cemetery for the changing of the guard. But it's the tomb of the unknown soldier. And they pick the finest, the best, those who are trained. And they have precision. They don't have a hair of lint. Uh, they have the white gloves. They're marching back and forth. And if you're there at the right time, you can see the changing of a guard. And it's been known where people would try to make an interruption and then the police or the military authority or someone would step in. And this, this is not a joke because this is about honor. This is about, this is about every soldier and every unknown and every known. Unknown to us, but known to God. And I want you to know there is no unknown to God because God knows every tear, every sorrow, every sacrifice, everything that anyone has ever done. The psalmist says he gathers your tears in a bottle. He collects every bit of sacrifice and hurt. He knows exactly who we are, what we've done, and where we are. 1929, there was a man by the name of Fred M. Jones. He was a teenager when he got married, and he uh, had a couple of kids right away, and it was the Depression. It's hard to get a job, so he enlisted in the Navy. He uh, became a machinist mate, first class, and was on a number of ships, but he wound up on the USS Oklahoma, and he had been in for over a decade, went on December 7th, 1941. A wave of zeros came into uh, Pearl Harbor and dropped their torpedoes, and then another wave and another wave. The Oklahoma was hit and soon capsized, and there were men on board who were still alive. Some were killed immediately, but some uh, ran out of oxygen after several days and could not be rescued. That ship became a cemetery where the remains would never be identified, a mass grave that we honor to this day. But in 2010, because of the advances of DNA testing, it soon became possible to give proper honor to those who had perished, who were heroes, who had given their life. Most heroes I know of don't think of themselves as heroes. They simply have done what was before them to do and invested themselves in something that would outlive themselves, but they were just doing what they felt that they should do. They don't think that they were heroes. I was on a plane flying into uh, Detroit, Michigan. A couple years ago, I was coming to teach at a minister's training deal. And uh, we got pulling up to the gate, and the pilot got on. Now, you know how you get when you're ready to get off the plane. Everyone's wanting to jump out on the aisle and 
bring down their stuff and crowd in before someone else crowds. And some have got flights, and it's, it's, it's morning, it's busy. It's, it's not Atlanta, but it's close to Atlanta. It's, it's, it's a busy, busy airport. And the pilot gets on, and he, he introduces a, a, a sailor in the first-class department. He says he's escorting a fallen comrade. And sure enough, it was uh, Fred. Uh, he was from Port Huron, Michigan, Fred M. Jones, and they had made preparations for his body to come home after all this time. He gets on, he said, would you please stay in your seats? And he explains what's going to happen. Now, I expected there to be noise or people rustling or this or that, but there was not a sound. I just happened to look out my window, and that's where the luggage belt was going down. Instead of luggage, it was a casket, flag-draped casket. Waiting for that casket were members of all the representative services who stood in attention. There was a group, uh, kind of like a caravan thing that was going to go on. And there were motorcycles. I don't know if you know about this, but they had this whole motorcycle group of veterans who would follow in the procession. There would be flags on overpasses, and there would be people at various places to honor the fallen who was coming home. At the gravesite, there would be a full military honor guard. There would be a 21-gun salute. The flag would be given to the nearest relative, and finally, the honor that was due someone would finally be realized late but not forgotten. When Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 about this, what we translate as judgment seat of Christ, he was really talking about how honor will be given and honor will be received by those who are faithful to the calling that God gave them. It has nothing to do with titles. It has nothing to do with recognition. God has a different measuring stick than, than we do. But it has to do with the gifts that were given an individual and what they did with the gifts that God gave them. The Bible calls it stewards. We're, we're, we're not really our own. We're bought with a price, 1 Corinthians 6, 19. And so it's what we do with our life that we give back to the Lord because he actually owns it all in the first place. And he'll say, what did you do with those gifts that I gave you? And that'll be a time of honor and a time of praise. We're in a culture we don't know much about honor. We think everyone should get a participation trophy. Why keep score? I mean, really, that might offend somebody. And, you know, everyone deserves honor. No, 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 no. It really does make a difference what you do and what you don't do and who you are and who you aren't. Now, I realize that once you're saved, the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses you, and, and there's going to be people who struggled and fell and did this and that and just sort of lumbered in the kingdom of God and, and made it to heaven. I thank God for that. I, I praise God for that. 
but on that day. And I believe according to 1 John 2.28 and 2 John 8, this is going to be at the rapture of the church. At that day, the writer of Hebrews pictures a great coliseum of, of, of people of the redeemed who are, are watching those who will finish the race and see how they do on that day. There will be honor that will be to be spowed for those who have been faithful. I want to tell you a story. It's a true story. But it'll kind of serve as a metaphor, it does for Paul in the book of Corinthians. Timosithius uh, was a wrestler. There was none better. All who came against him were soundly beaten, three to zero. How they did it was that there was a circle, and the judges awarded a point. They started out standing. And uh, the judges awarded a point when you threw your opponent to the ground. Now, this is not like the wrestling you see on TV. They weren't throwing chairs at each other, nothing like that. This was just straight-up strength, throw them to the ground. Because Timosithius uh, did not get thrown, he always was successful, and, and he uh, achieved uh, local great fame. But then he went to the Olympics, and that's when he realized who his opponent would be. Only then did he come to find out that he would be wrestling Milan of Croton, a student of the philosopher Pythagoras, a five-time Olympic champion and winner of much honor. Arguably, Milan was the best athlete in the world, or perhaps some would say that the world has ever seen. To no one's surprise, the match progressed quickly with Milan scoring the first of the three points necessary for his win. In less than 10 seconds, Milan readily threw uh, Timosithius to the ground with no apparent effort. The audience was bored, for the result of the match seemed inevitable. Just as Timosithius looked like he would be thrown down for a second time, though, that's when things got exciting. He shifted ever so slightly a move that he had been practicing since he was four years old, and he caught the champion off guard. Timosithius lowered the center of gravity and used Milan's own strength and lack of caution against him unceremoniously. The champion landed on the ground. A hush washed over the spectators. Someone had scored a point on Milan. But he was not going to be fooled again. Angry at the trick move, Milan came at Timosithius with a chokehold. It was anticipated, for Timosithius had gone to bed for 5,000 nights in a row thinking of this very hold. In his dreams, he practiced the feint, the move of the hand, and the sudden reversing and roll. Milan should have known he had too easily caught his opponent, yet in his overconfidence, he had not anticipated his danger. Once again, the challenger used the champion's own weight to his own advantage as he flipped Milan over on his back and slammed him to the ground. The silent crowd was 
suddenly thunderous, wildly berating one wrestler or praising the other. They were on their feet, shouting and furiously gesturing to the combatants. The spectators would not be silenced. It was the third and winning point that impressed them the most. For this time, there was no trickery. From some hidden reserve of strength, Timosithius demonstrated something no one had ever done before. Out of sheer force, he began to overpower the champion. Inch by hard-fought inch, he wrestled pushing Milan closer and closer to the ground until at last a nobody from nowhere took down the greatest champion in the world. Except he wasn't a nobody from nowhere. And it wasn't an accident. Well, it's true he caught the champion after his prime. It's also true that he deserved the victory, for he had honed his skills every day and invested his life in being the very best he could. Now, this is what I want you to catch. It was the ceremony afterwards. It was a ceremony with which the Apostle Paul was familiar. It was a ceremony with which everybody in the time of Christ was familiar. And this is what it was. Timosithius was called to the bema. It was like a raised uh, platform, and, and he was led there to receive his reward. There was all kinds of protocol that was associated with it. Uh, a special lad had a golden scissor, and he went over to what they deemed to be a sacred olive tree, and in a very ceremonial way, he clipped uh, various parts of that in order to weave uh, the crown that would be given it was placed on a gold ivory table. The judges of the Olympic Games wove the greenery into a wreath, and then the crown was placed upon the head of the champion. They put it down, and when they did, the crowds erupted in thunderous applause. From that sacred place where they believed Zeus himself had stood, women formed a procession. Priests spoke in chants, and the crowd stood in awe as Timosithius walked up the stairs and then down again with the victor's crown. Nor did the procession stop there, because Timosithius had brought honor to himself. He had brought honor to his family. He had brought honor to his city, and he had brought honor to all who knew him. There would be parades, there would be wealth, there would be success for the rest of his days. That's the background picture that Paul is seeing in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 of honor. We don't understand honor again in this culture. In the Bible days, honor was crude accrued or honor was lost. It could be gained and it could be diminished. The honor that he's talking about is the honor of somebody who is faithful. He wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 5, 
He says, judge nothing for the, for the coming of the Lord. The Lord comes who will, will make manifest the counsel of the heart, reveal the counsel of the heart, and then each one's praise, the, the where the praise will come from, will come from God himself. We, he'll give the laud. He'll give the praise. Praise the Lord. And it has to do with our gifts and how we use them. My sister was 11 months to the day older than me, and she was my mentor as well as my friend. She would uh, praise me when I did good, and she'd let me know when I wasn't doing good. She'd take notes on a sermon, say, good point. Then she'd say, what? You know, like that. One day she talked to me, and she said, Dave, I need to talk to you. I said, okay. She said, I have to tell you something. I said, okay. She said, well, don't take this wrong, okay? I won't. All right, well, you know, you're, you're pretty gifted, and, and uh, you, you, you have the ability to talk. Um, you don't need a lot of preparation. You can just get up and say stuff and make sense. I said, okay. She said, but you're lazy. I was 11 years old when I got the Holy Ghost and I was called to um, be a preacher. That's the language I understood. And when I was 18, the Lord spoke to me that I would start a church someday. And I was going to Bible college. It wasn't like I was like out carousing or something. I mean, come on. But in truth, I just was kind of thinking that ministry was like, out there someplace, that what I was doing was sort of like, I don't know, just getting ready for something that would happen at some point. I don't know. That summer, I went on a uh, singing tour. Um, It was a quartet back in the days when quartets were cool. Uh, Quartet tour for about eight weeks. It was a long summer. Three days before the tour was to end, we were singing at a camp in Kentucky, and it had been raining that morning, and we had uh, our four boys in the van, and uh, the uh, faculty, uh, brother and sister Griffin in the car, and the girls in the car up in front, and uh, we went to pass a vehicle, and when we did, uh, the van uh, caught the side of the road, too narrow road, and it actually flipped end over end. I was in the back. I don't remember much, um, but I, Brother Griffin said he saw me coming through the door outside the van like Superman, flying through the air with the greatest of ease until I wasn't. The road was wet, which saved my life, and I bounced like a rock is skipping. I landed on my face and my hands, and I wound up in a ditch full of water. I was sitting up. Had I been laying down, they never would have found me and I would have drowned. And he laid his hands. I don't remember this. He told me. Prayed for me. And, uh, I, uh, something happened that day, or perhaps during the context of all that, that, uh, you know, all of a sudden you're like, I almost died. I mean, 
literally, I almost, I almost died. And I had prayed, you know, a 19-year-old, 18-year-old, whatever it was. I prayed, Lord God, make me in ministry full-time. That's what I want. I want no halfway stuff. Make me a full-time minister. After that um, accident, I became a full-time minister. Now, don't misunderstand me. I still worked. (laughs) But I realized... This isn't dress rehearsal. This isn't practice. When the curtain's up, it's up, and you don't know when it's coming down. And what you do right now is all you get to do. Whatever you're going to accomplish for eternity, that's it. People talk about balance. You need to be balanced. And people mean all kinds of different ways, like things like that. Uh, don't be so religious, or don't be so this, or don't be so that. I, I kind of think that God has a different perspective on all that. I, I believe in balance, but I believe in divine balance. I believe that, that, that if you put God first, the things kind of have a tendency to work out in the way that God wants them to work out. Here's what Paul said. He said, don't you know that those who run in a race all, all run? This is 1 Corinthians 9.24. But only one receives the prize. So run. So run that you may obtain it. I teach uh, freshmen, as uh, Brother Johns was saying, Brother Bernard and I teach the freshmen. They first walk in the door. We teach them Pentecostal doctrine. They memorize uh, 62 verses, they answer two, 20 conceptual questions, I have an oral final, all of that. I, I hope you have a great profession, but before you do anything, you got to know why you believe what you do. It's a, it starts out good and everyone's excited, but towards the middle of the class, I start repeating myself a lot because I'm teaching to the bottom of the class. I don't want anyone to miss it. And the, some of the upper kids who got it the first time, they're going like, oh, I got convicted. Like, I'm boring these people. And, Lord, I'm a steward of the time that I have in the classroom. What can I do? And so I started an honors class, special honor. And uh, has a special teacher. And um, this year, the teacher is the president of the school, Brother Brent Coltharp. And when he comes in town, he'll have special classes. And I said, I don't care what you teach. They've already got the basics, so... Whatever you want, you can teach them. Go deeper, help them, you know. But how are you going to pick the people in the honors class? I'm not going to pick them. They're going to pick themselves. Those 62 verses you have to memorize by the end of the semester, I want them by this Friday. And if you have them memorized word for word by this Friday, you'll be in the honors class. What if I really want to be in there? I can't break in. I don't know. It's your problem, not mine. I asked, how many want to really do it? I asked this last Thursday. How many want to do this? Bunches of hands went up. And I, I, I gave them the whole speech, you know. 
And, and what they'll do is they will review. They'll be the leaders of the class, and I'll use them over groups, and I'll give them special projects. And when the oneness apostolic leaders come to them, they'll be their hosts, and they'll have all kinds of stuff. I'll give them honor. And you know what's amazing? Their peers clap for them when they get in the honors class. You see, when you receive honor from the Lord Jesus Christ in that day, you'll not only be honoring yourself, you'll be honoring your family. You'll be honoring this church or the church you belong to, and you'll be honoring the Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, praise God. You choose. Don't you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. He was talking about the Isthmian races, and he said, don't you know that everyone's competing for the prize? They're, 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 they're training, and, and they're trying to run, and so on. He says, they're doing it for that little temporal crown, but you're doing it for a crown that's not temporal, a crown that will never pass away. That's the crown that you're seeking. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Lift your hands to the Lord. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. That concert pianist you just think was so lucky or talented is not lucky or talented alone. But when she was five years old, she was playing a couple hours a day. And when she became a teenager, she was practicing while other people were doing other things. And when she went to school for this, it was an eight-hour-a-day deal. And before that concert where you stood up and clapped after every encore, she was in her mind living in the concert, in the very concert. She heard the applause, but she more than that, she heard the music. And she was doing to the music what she knew to do because she was investing the gifts that God gave to her, and she was making them useful for the concert. Well, if that's true in a concert that we appreciate and love, how much more? How much more? I was in West Bend, Wisconsin. We had started a church, and the Lord helped uh, a lot of times it's, you know, you go through a number of congregations before you get going. We, we had some people that were just ready to serve the Lord when we walked in. And it was wonderful. And so we've been there five, six years. And I loved every part of it. Uh, new, fresh people. We thought we could do anything. But I was restless. And this has been gone on for a while. And uh, when I have missionaries through it, I'd ask them, I'd say, I'm happy for what God's doing here, but what are we going to do to reach the world? One missionary asked me, he said, you know, I think you might be called to be a missionary. I said, oh, no, no, not me. I, it's, uh, no, I, not, not me. He said, have you ever volunteered? I said, what? To be a missionary. 
Well, no, of course I haven't. He said, well, God doesn't force anyone to do anything. Have you ever thought you could volunteer? He said, this is what you do. You tell God, I'm, uh, I'm available to you. And pray and fast for a month. And if he tells you something, then you'll know. Uh, well, that was common sense. I didn't, I didn't know I didn't thought of it, but so I did it. In that month itself, nothing happened. So I thought, well, maybe nothing. So, but then a couple of weeks later, God spoke to me, a very specific call about teaching in, in Bible college setting. It was so real. It was clear. And, um, I've been doing that now for 35 years since that time. I've been faithful, faithful to God's call. Um, but, you know, that, that's not unique with me. Here's what I know about this congregation, what I know about every congregation, is when you have times of prayer, God speaks to you about sometimes really huge dreams, sometimes big things, sometimes things that seem so beyond you that you're wondering how in the world that could possibly happen. And sometimes we set them aside as not possible, and sometimes we put them as a future thing. When God wants us all the time to be proactively listening and seeking and preparing and planning. He can't steer a parked car. But he's here today because he has so special plans for us things that he is going to make your life. Uh, the apostles had got beating, they miracles, pastors. Nobody calls a pastor and says, Pastor Johns, I had a normal day today. It was really normal. I just wanted to call and let you know how normal it was. No, they call when they're in the emergency room. Or they call when this great award was given to my son. You see the highs and the lows, but you're never bored. Glory to God. I want to take you to uh, the end of time, at least the end of our time in this world. There's a man by Tim Stevenson who paints a picture of uh, this last um, event in conjunction with the rapture of the church, uh, this raised dais. And I want to just read this to you. And at the end of that, I'm going to, in fact, in the middle, I'll probably have you stand. But I, 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 I'm going to have you answer the same question that was asked to me. Have you ever volunteered? You say, what am I volunteering for? Is that a, um, like a missionary or a pastor? The Lord measures gifts and callings different than we do, and he measures sacrifice different than we do. He saw all the people giving in the temple, and he said, that lady, that, that lady that uh, put those two little coins in there, 
she gave more than them all. On that day, when you're at the bame, at the judgment seat of Christ, I'm going to look at you and he'll say, yeah, that's the one who prayed in the middle of the night when I prompted her to. And that's where the missionary's life was saved. Oh, yeah, that man, he opened up that corner of India. He didn't even know what he was praying for. He was speaking in tongues. He was interceding. Oh, yeah, that's the one that broke that at, 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 at the church where there, there, there was uh, an attack of the enemy, and they, they felt to pray every day. Oh, yeah, that's the man that saved the pastor's life because of his faithfulness in prayer. That's the, the child that was believing. That's the young person that poured themselves out, that sacrificed in ways that nobody else saw. And in that day... I'm going to be there with the entire crowd given the standing ovation for the honor that will be given. But that day starts with this day. Like the musicians come and back me up here. Imagine, if you would, with me a large, bigger than any stadium, uh, university football stadium or any coliseum that you can think of. But imagine the church being there and the Old Testament saints as well, the people who uh, have lived for God and were faithful. Jesus Christ is there. He's on the raised dais. And there are angelic hosts attending this place of honor. Time means nothing. For everything can be known at once. A whole life story condensed to a single flash of knowing by all who see. There's a blue-clad angel there standing on the bema, striking the platform three times with his staff. And he announces the name. Timolaus, Germanicus, of Lugdunum. Immediately, the saint flies to the floor of the stadium, landing beneath the floor of the beamer, whether under his own power or angelic assistance, I do not know. He stands for a moment and walks up the steps. Watching him, I nearly feel his holy fear. How could anyone approach him who sat there? In the back of my mind, I counted the steps as he climbed. There were ten. Timolaus was a poor man, a smith by trade. Because he was a Christian, and because Emperor Decius gave the order for them to be persecuted, Timolaus was offered a lethal choice. He could either denounce Christ and escape, or he could endure torture that would end with martyrdom. Meekly, he chose the latter, not supposing his real story would be known to anyone besides those few enemies who inflicted the pain. His body was scraped. They scraped the flesh off his bones and still alive and conscious. He was in pain and agony. And then they t took his mangled body and 
dumped it into the arena to be devoured by lions and leopards. His last words, heard only by the man who threw him down, was, My name is Timaleus. I'm a Christian. Would you stand, please? There's a blinding flash. Timaleus was transformed into a creature of beauty and glory that surpasses my powers to surpasses any powers of description to tell. He was made like the Lord. His face was gleaming like the sun. There appeared around his head crowns. I, like the Lord's, I could not tell if they were literal or I'm inclined to think they were aspects of glory. I can think of no better words. And then Jesus Christ stand forward and put his hand around his shoulder, turns to the crowd and says to this group of onlookers, this is my beloved Timaleus Germanicus in whom I am well pleased. And the crowd began to praise God and honor a man who poured himself out. We're not at a time where we need to physically give our life for the Lord. But we are at a time where God is calling for people to be in the honor guard. You will not get a participation trophy for this. You say, well, what do I have to do or what is it? Uh, you're volunteering to say, Lord, whatever it is. And not only that, some of you, he's already been speaking to you about it. And you've held your hand like the little child with a candy in the candy store. And you say, what's in your hand? you got to give. No, no. Oh, come on. So we release our hands and say, Lord, I give up my life again. I did it before, but I've been I'm giving it up again. And I'm volunteer, and I, I will take the next step. It's always something very practical. What is it that you've been not doing that you should do? Habits are started small, but, they're, but they start in the heart. And it starts with the heart that makes you a quote-unquote full-time minister. You may have other things. You may have other plans. You may have other relationships. But do you want to work for the Lord full-time? Wouldn't that be great? There may be some that are sick. We ask you to come as well. Lord's a healer. There may be someone like that one online. You say, you know, I, I'm not waiting another Sunday. I'm going to come up and I want to be in that crowd. The ones who are praising God for what he's done in the church. So today, Lord, I give myself to you. These altars are open. <laughs>